Welcome to this episode of Law Girl. I'm Jasmine Dea coming to you from my personal injury law firm, Jasmine Dea & Company, located in Midtown Toronto. Joining me is Nimali Gamagay, a partner at the law firm of Goddard Gamagay LLP in Toronto. She is recognized in the best lawyers in Canada to, from 2014 to 2020, that's impressive, in the field of trusts and estates. Nimali's practice is comprised of both litigation and solicitor's work. She has a special focus on guardianship, power of attorney issues, elder law, estate planning, estate litigation, capacity, and Ontario disability support program issues. Nimali has many things in her bio, a lot more than what I have just said. I've given the very, very, very abbreviated version, but there is no doubt that she is well accomplished and very capable of telling us about what she does. So without further ado, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Before we even discuss what it is you do, because I have a lot of questions and I'm sure if I have questions then others out there are also wondering what exactly you do, but I first want to know what made you decide to go to law school? Well, basically, um, it was my second choice of careers. My first passion when I was in high school um, and even undergrad was acting. Acting. Acting and entertaining, singing. But according to my parents, acting was not a profession. It was a hobby. And I was my, not... A, my parents would say that too. Maybe it's because of our background. It could be. Yes. It could be because of our cultural backgrounds. Mm -hmm. um, so acting was not an option for me. And so I was also throughout high school very passionate about the law i was on my high school mock trial team and we won the ontario championship when i was in grade 13 so i was passionate about the law as well and so it wasn't you know okay so you were actually well accomplished from high school it sounds like <laughs> i can't say the same about me well but, i don't know about uh, <laughs> accomplished, but i was i was definitely interested and passionate about law back then um as well as a plan B. And so what really got me interested, the reason I applied to law school is because during the end of high school and undergrad, I was volunteering and working part-time at a non-legal advocacy center for people with disabilities and seniors. Um, called It was called Citizen Advocacy, uh, where I grew up in Windsor. And I was stunned. It was the first time in my life that I was exposed to issues around ageism and ableism and isolation of, you know, severe isolation of seniors in our community and, and people with disabilities. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, I enjoyed my experience volunteering and working at this non-legal advocacy center, but at the same time, I felt like I needed more teeth. Um, in, in my role in, in order to, to make a difference. And so I thought going to law school would, would give me that extra, the extra oomph in order to make a difference in that area, in the area of, you know, issues around the elderly and, and disabled. And where'd you go to law school? Uh, Ottawa. Ottawa. Yeah, which I loved. And are you from Ottawa? Or are you from well, Toronto? Well, so I or? was born in Ottawa, actually, but uh, my family left there when I was six and I grew up in Windsor. And I did my undergrad at, at Windsor. And I know, and Windsor had a great law school. I, I worked in the law library during undergrad and uh, loved, loved University of Windsor and the law school, but I needed, it was time to 
Make a change? Yes, yeah. <laughs> it was time for a change. So yeah, I went to Ottawa Law. Okay. So you practice in the area of trusts and estates. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what to ask because I am shocked at how broad this area is. In talking to you before we started recording, mm-hmm. I thought I knew what your practice area covered, but I recognize now how there is so much more to it. Mm-hmm. So tell us what you do, um, but let's start with when I read your bio, it says that you do litigation and solicitor's work. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about what is the difference, what is that, and then we'll delve a little deeper. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, to put it very generally, what I do is basically help people with respect to legal issues regarding disability or dying or death or incapacity. Yes, all fun. <laughs> I know I'm looking at it, I'm looking at it right now and I'm like, topic. wow. <laughs> On this yes, afternoon we're party. talking about all this yes, morbid yeah. stuff. Very very morbid. <laughs> yes. Um so and when I say, you know, so legal issues about disability and death uh, and incapacity that does encompass a lot and so yes my bio says I practice both you know the solicitor and litigation side of that what that means is um, I represent people of all ages of all you know stations in life all classes either to help them organize their affairs on the front end so doing their wills powers of attorney trusts, getting their affairs in order um, or more in sort of the middle section, which is, you know, maybe they've made powers of attorney um, or maybe they haven't and they end up having an accident or they need someone, you know, to start helping them. And that person, maybe they've appointed someone under a power of attorney and that person abuses the authority given to them. So we end up with power of attorney litigation. Maybe they don't have a power of attorney, but they become incapable and so they need a guardianship. And that litigation can become contested or not, um, and that's sort of you know that's sort of in the in the middle section. If we're talking about you know if we're talking about this in terms of a spectrum, uh, mm-hmm. so these people are alive. These people are alive. Okay. Um, and so and so those are the two sort of you know what, while people are alive, there's you know all the planning they can do in an ideal world. Then there's all the litigation that can happen. Um, and, and that's how we that's how we met we met when i had a client i can't actually remember which one because it was many years ago mm-hmm. um but i had a client who no longer had capacity as a result of an accident mm-hmm. and i needed to get you may not remember this but i do um <laughs> i needed to get a guardian application completed and while i can figure out what needs to be done. I decided years ago, um, actually it was a a talk I heard. It it might have been actually you, I don't know. (laughs) But it was a talk about how Maybe personal injury lawyers shouldn't be the ones to do the guardianship application. Yeah, that was probably me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now that I'm like, wait a second, we did meet at a conference. Well, at least I heard you speak. Yes, it was you. Um, so I agree. You know, after my years of experience, I agree. I agree that it 
my personal opinion, other personal injury lawyers may have a different opinion than mine, but I believe that it makes sense for me to retain an expert in that area which would be someone like yourself to do that guardianship application. And so what is a guardian application? It is where my client has lost the ability to make decisions for themselves. So we have to get this procedure done so that someone else can make decisions on their behalf. Yeah. And that's where you come in right? Right. and you have for me. Right. And it's been good to have you because then I don't have to deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, so that's a big part of the, of, of my practice area is, you know, all of those, all the variety of things that the ways we can, I can help people during their lifetime to either get their affairs in order or if they didn't have their affairs in order to help, to help them in that situation. And then there is uh, the work we do when someone passes away. Um, I mean, I guess prior to that, there is the work we do when someone is dying, which is a whole other area. So when they're dying and there are issues around substitute decision making at that time. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then there's, you know, so when they pass away, there's the estate administration, estate litigation. So estate administration sometimes can be, you know, fairly straightforward, uncontested. Someone just needs to apply for probate I'll use the old term because that's more user friendly um, what's the new term you really want to I so do the, know I want to know I want so to the know. new term for applying for probate is applying for a certificate of appointment of a state trustee with or without a will oh that's what I know I okay. do know that okay. <laughs> because that's what we use in the yes. rules of civil procedure of it's yes. there that is the proper name in the rules because we of have procedure. to get an order to continue when someone yes dies uh, during your during the litigation, litigation. Mm-hmm. and so that is what we get yes. that's what we use yes. yes I know a few things yes so so um, in some cases we're just uh, you know assisting the family or or whoever to obtain that authority to administer the estate pursuant to a certificate of appointment. Um, And then in other cases, the estate administration goes sideways for whatever reason. So, you know, perhaps there's no will, which happens often. Mm-hmm. Well, do you want to do the majority your... of Canadians don't have wills? Would you like to do a public service <laughs> message right now about sure. wills? Go ahead. Uh, my public service message, well, that everyone should have a will and powers of attorney. More importantly, possibly powers of attorney, because those are the documents that are effective during your lifetime if you get into an accident and can't make decisions for yourself. Something that people, you know, my friends always say this, do I really need a will and powers of attorney? I mean, won't my spouse just be able to handle everything for me? And the answer is no. (laughs) The answer is (laughs) Simply put, Simply put, no. No. And people are often shocked, you know, when I tell them stories, you know, no names basis without too many identifying details. But unfortunately, I have awful stories of family members who have come to me after someone has died unexpectedly. There's no will, um, you know, not all the assets were in joint accounts or even if they were, um, there is still the need for administering this estate where the person didn't have their affairs in order. And these are not terrible people. Like these are, this is 60 to 75% of the population. Yeah. These are very smart, organized people. Um, they just did not prioritize doing their will and powers of attorney. Well, we were, we were also talking, there's some people that are superstitious. Yes. 
And they feel like if they're doing their will, it means they might die or something, yes. you know, prematurely. Yes. Um, so, you know, so, I, I don't think we need to believe in superstition with this one, though. I think it's the smart thing to do is to get a will and to get powers of attorney. And I can tell you that when we are getting guardianship applications done for um, our clients from the personal injury perspective, it's shocking to my clients. About, um, it's shocking about how much it costs. The yeah. cost just blows their mind. The it, cost and the intrusion and the process. Oh, yeah. Right? Well, so, I, mean, so, I don't even see all of it. I do know that they keep emailing me saying there's they need more information. They need more right. information. So I don't even right. know exactly what's being asked. But I know it's a lot. Maybe you can yeah. tell us. So from my perspective, I will. And this is part of the public service announcement. Yes. Right? When, pe- when my friends say to me, why do I really need powers of attorney? What most people don't know is that if you don't if you don't grant a power of attorney to someone else and you become incapable of managing your own finances or making your own personal care decisions um, particularly on the financial side if we talk about it separately no one is authorized to manage your finances for you unless you have appointed them in a power of attorney or they get authority from the court through a guardianship and so and there are other ways. There's there's other ways to get a, to get a guardianship, but without going into too much of the nitty gritty, mm-hmm. the point is, um, in a lot of these cases where there's a where there's an accident and there's going to be a large amount of money in a settlement, if the person doesn't have a power of attorney, then the family cannot access that money, which they desperately need in order to pay for everything, for medical care and expenses, and and so they have to bring a court application to get a guardianship and. The reason guardianship applications are so expensive is because the court does not take away someone else's fundamental right to make their own decisions lightly, right? You have to provide a lot of evidence. You have to provide ample evidence of incapacity. You have to provide evidence that this is the right person to be the guardian. You have to provide a detailed management plan. You have to serve it on a whole bunch of people, including the public guardian and trustee. It's, there's a lot of checks and balances it's built the whole in. thing. Because it's a whole thing. It's a huge intrusion. And cost? Tell, tell everyone how much. Cost approximately, give or take, an uncontested guardianship application. So that's where nobody is disagreeing with the management plan and who should be the guardian. Um, Twelve to $18,000 these days. And if you had a power of attorney in place, you would not need to spend the twelve to 18000 so people often complain, you know, people will say, well, you know, I don't really want to make a will and powers of attorney. It's too expensive to go to a lawyer to do it. Because my other side note to my public service announcement about making a will and powers of attorney. Um, yes, you can make a will and power of attorney using a will, a kit, a will and power of attorney kit. Sure, you can do that. Um, yes, it can be valid if you fill it out properly and if you address all the issues that are important to you. But most people don't actually know what all the issues are and what is important to them and how to fill those kits out properly. You just reminded me of the case, the one case that I remember from law school, the guy who put the everything, yeah, the tractor. <laughs> he engraved everything to my wife or yes. something yeah. and, he, and he initialed it or yeah. signed it. Yeah, it was, it was a hol- considered holograph. Holograph will, yeah. see? Yeah. I'm so proud of myself so, remembering that. Sure. I mean, does so that, is, but it's valid. So, so this the is tractor, say, it can be valid. You can do a handwritten holograph will. You can do a will kit will. 
and they can be valid. I'm I'm not saying that you know. I mean, it's it can be better than nothing. It and we should we should just explain this case because no one knows what we're talking about. So right. you probably remember it better than me. I just remember him engraving. This guy well, I, was to injured. To be honest, I haven't read the case since law school. Oh, but okay. it basically was a it was a farmer. Yep. Um, he got trapped. He was got trapped under under his tractor, and was dying. And he scratched with I don't know what. His nail, tool? I don't know, tool, <laughs> nail, I don't know. He just, it just says scratched. I don't think we, we were told. <laughs> he scratched into the side of his tractor, his, his last will and testament, um, his dying wishes as to what happens to. Which was like one line, everything to my. Everything to my wife and, and then and signed it. And I don't even think it was signed. I think it was initialed because <laughs> he had, like, was using whatever He was using whatever instrument, instrument he had, <laughs> fingernail. Yeah. Um, but it was deemed valid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, yes. So, you can. So, so you but can. But what are the problems? But, so, you know, the, the problems, like I said, you know, are... So, for example, people don't know the difference between what is a valid holograph will and how do you properly fill out a will kit will. There's, there's different. And it can be contested more easily, I it would assume. It can be contested more easily. Yes. It can disregard critical issues for you, right? So, if you have... Um, you know, if you have children from different relationships or, you know, legal obligations to former spouses or disabled beneficiaries or corporate assets or assets in other jurisdictions, which lots of people do because of, you know, how mobile everybody is. There are all these issues that people don't realize because they think their situation is simple because it's their situation. They've been living it. But they don't realize that their simple situation in simple in their view, is actually quite complicated in a legal sense. So anyway, whether you make your own, whether you make your will yourself or you make it with a lawyer, the point is that um, it really should be, what, what I really wish is that when people, when people turned 18, it was just in that bucket of things that they think, oh, now I'm a grown up, I'm going to get, you know, I'm going to have an RSP and I'm going to have a house and a car and a will and a power of attorney. You know, like that's what being a grown up means is. <laughs> I don't, I'm looking at you because I, I feel like not everyone agrees with you, but they should. No, in but fact, they should. 75% of Canadians don't agree with me. Yes. That's approximately. Well, that's the, they don't agree. I just don't think they've realized. Can no. we say that? They, well, they don't, they don't prioritize the will and power of attorney in the same way that they do organizing other, you know, having savings for their retirement and having... So let's let's explain something. Because I think that a lot of people are concerned about getting a will because they don't want to pay a lawyer to do it, mm-hmm. right? Um, if it's not complicated, okay? Yeah. If they don't have assets everywhere and, you know, offshore accounts and I don't know, whatever, all this crazy stuff. But if it's just the average person, what are we talking about for the cost of a will, a will ballpark? Well, even if it's a range. Yeah, so coming to a law firm to do it, which even if it's a straightforward situation, I would still recommend that you come to a law firm to do it. And I'm not say, I'm actually not saying that to get the business because you know, as a litigator, you would understand there's actually much more money in it for me. If they if don't, don't have make a will, wills yeah, and I know. things get litigated after, yeah, right. So I am saying this actually 
out of, you know, to my own detriment, to my own financial yep. detriment. You're doing it as a preventative measure to help people recognize the importance yeah. of a will. And yeah. I get it. So, so because to make a will, to make a straightforward will, if it's a truly straightforward situation, and I say truly straightforward yeah. because... Often people think this. I know you don't want anyone simple. coming back to you and be like, "But you said it was only going to be this much." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I can. One of my junior associates can handle that at their hourly rate, and so we're talking maybe. You know, we're not talking less than a thousand. Okay. But could be less than fifteen hundred, right? Okay. If you look at, it's about maybe three and a half, three hours of. A lawyer's time mm-hmm. to do a straightforward you know from the first meeting to the drafting to the signing meeting mm-hmm. um so if that's three three and a half hours you're about 1500 right a thousand to fifteen hundred if it's thousand fifteen hundred for yeah. basic will as compared to if you don't have a will the estate administration for an intestate estate which is what an estate is called if when they don't no have will, a will yeah can be several thousands of dollars more than the estate administration for an estate with a will. And then if there's estate litigation, which there often is when there's no will because all kinds of issues come up because we don't know what the testator wanted because they didn't document their wishes. Mm-hmm. Um, the estate litigation can be tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. And then on top of that, because they don't have a will, they probably also don't have powers of attorney. Right. And so... You're looking at the guardianship application first if they lacked capacity before they pass away. Yeah. So you have the guardianship application, which we said was costly. I think you said was 12, it 15, 12, 12 to 18,000 18, if it's uncontested. Okay, if it's uncontested. So if it's basic, then you're at 12 yeah. to 18. And then they pass away, they have no will, and you're looking at tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. Yeah. So basically, the 1,000, 1,500 for a basic will is what you should do. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> I hope everyone else got it. Uh, tell us about your day pre-COVID. Like as a lawyer in this area, what were your days like? Are you in the office? Are you at court? What are you doing generally? Well, yeah. So because I do, because my practice is 50-50, the solicitor side and the litigation side, I'm not always in court, um, which is actually one of the things I really like about doing both litigation and solicitor work is that you do have that break from the madness of the litigation, right? You're always I love the madness around. of the litigation. I know. It's, <laughs> which is why. I miss it so much. I'm like, can the courts please fully reopen? I like need to get back in there. Yeah. But it, I, I realize it's not everyone's cup of tea. And for you, it seems like you have a good balance. Well, it's the balance yeah. that I like. Yeah. Because I wouldn't, you know, uh, so 100% solicitor work as well would be like, ooh, I'd be, you know, just waiting for that juicy litigation case to, you know, it really, it really hones your, your knowledge and your, and your advocacy skills and thinking on your feet. And, um, and also the clients are traumatized. They're in, they have some kind of problem that has brought them to you to help solve. And Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of heightened emotion, heightened emotion. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of exciting stuff about the litigation, but the other part of me that really loves the solicitor work is the part of me who just, you know, loves organizing, loves people who are organized. <laughs> well, you probably need, you, you get to think and plan and organize, you know, nicely. And it's proactive. Yeah, it's no, I get it. I don't get to do any right? of Litigation that. We're just like running around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I like having that, that balance, right? Yeah. And, and, um, 
you know, on the planning side, you really get to feel like you're helping people Mm -hmm. um, deal with their own anxieties. I mean, a lot of people have heightened now, especially um, anxieties about end of life, end of life decisions, Mm -hmm. dying, what's going to happen with my family if I'm, if something happens to me. And there's a lot of anxiety out there about that right now. Mm -hmm. And so um, because I have a subspecialty in um, disability issues, I work with a lot of parents of disabled children and you know there's there's a lot of anxiety there about how do I plan for the future when I'm not there to I have a client person right now um, we've just settled his case really unfortunate um, situation where my client is in his early 20s um, severely disabled but he was in a pilot program it was uh, to try to get people with these types of disabilities, transition them from high school to adulthood. Mm-hmm. Probably couldn't hold down a job necessarily, but maybe volunteer or something like that. So it was like a transitional program, and it was a pilot project. It was new. They were trying to do it um, in a community just north of the city. I'm not going to give too many details because it was in the. It was highly publicized and I don't want anyone to know who this client was because that's not appropriate uh, but um, he had a situation where his client uh, sorry his parents were planning for the future and then you know doing this program and whatever he becomes injured because his EA his educational assistant um, assaulted him mm-hmm. and now we have someone who is disabled with an injury and his parents are now more concerned about what this means for the future. We ended up settling his claim from a personal injury perspective. But it was at that time that I realized that they did not have anything in place. Um, we had to get a guardianship application. Mm-hmm. And it was, again, the surprise and shock of the cost. And thankfully, the litigation paid for it. But in that type of situation, had there not been litigation, what would have happened? That's my question to you. What would have happened to this young boy? Well, it often falls to, I mean, if there is another, a sibling who's not disabled, it often falls to them to figure things out, to bring a guardianship application after, you know, both the parents are gone. Let's say both the parents die in an accident. Mm -hmm. Um, The non-disabled sibling will have to bring a guardianship application, um and figure out all the finances, you know, hopefully there was life insurance. The non-disabled sibling will have to administer both parents' estates. Mm -hmm. Whole host of issues. Whole host of issues. And that's assuming there's a non-disabled sibling. Yeah. And in a lot of cases... But who pays for this? Like if you have a disabled, if if you have a child who's born disabled, they're going to be disabled permanently. Mm -hmm. Who pays for this? Is it the family that must pay for this? Guardianship application? Well, if there isn't another source of payment, if the disabled person themselves doesn't have their own So there's funds, no government plan of any sort. This is the family to, has to bear the cost of that yeah. through the if legal there's an system. Accident, if there's a motor vehicle accident, you can often get the accident benefits insurer to pay. Except in my one case. Did you see it? <laughs> no. Ugh. Ugh. 
Okay, we'll talk about that when we're not we'll recording. Talk about, <laughs> off, we'll talk about that offline. <laughs> it, was not, it was a disaster. I was still angry about it. Yeah. Like, ruined my stellar reputation, my stellar winning reputation. Oh. Was this one case where the AB carrier... Okay, fine, we're just going to talk about it. The AB carrier <laughs> refused to fund the guardianship application because they said it was unnecessary because my client was on... Um, well, he was in a coma, and he ended up passing away a year after. Mm-hmm. And they said that the guardianship application was not necessary, but there were reasons. I didn't just do it for fun, well, obviously. He, known he was going to pass away. Well, exactly. Um, but we have the License Appeal Tribunal now that replaced the Financial Services Commission of Ontario. That mm-hmm. they now make decisions and I can't go to superior court like I used to be able to mm-hmm. um, because accident benefits are no longer under the jurisdiction of superior court so I'm stuck with this tribunal's decision which I believe is wrong <laughs> but mm-hmm. it is what it is and so we're now going to the tort aspect to see if they will fund it interesting mm-hmm. yeah I think they will yeah because well, I've got superior so court in majority of uncontested guardianship applications the court does order that if the incapable person has assets themselves or has a source of assets, that those that that the cost of the guardianship should be paid by them because the applicant for guardianship is not. This is not like a typical lawsuit. Mm-hmm. They're not bringing this application for their own advantage. They're bringing it so they can help their incapable family member. And so, in ninety nine point nine percent of uncontested guardianship applications if the funds are there if the incapable person has funds or has some source of funds the court will order the guardianship costs should come from there the difficulty is of course when the incapable person doesn't have significant funds Mm -hmm. yet they still need a guardianship and that's what i was asking like who funds this in some of those cases Mm -hmm. There are, you know, we don't, we don't want to get we don't get too granular about this and you know bore people to tears out there. But um, in in some cases, you can actually a guardianship isn't necessary in those cases if the person doesn't have significant assets. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, if their only income is ODSP is Ontario Disability Support Program benefits, then ODSP has a ODSP trusteeship, a form someone can sign. Oh, okay. To, well, that's helpful. To manage the ODSP income. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if there are no other assets or income coming in, then there may not actually be financial decisions that need to be made by a guardian. Okay. And so a guardianship application may not be necessary in all of those cases. Um, the problem is that we don't have a crystal ball. You don't know, right? And it's, and it's things change, so much right? easier. And things change. It's just so much easier if you do the planning at the front end. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing that we we don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. We don't know if this person is going to have assets or not, if they'll need a guardianship or not. But if they make their powers of attorney, then hopefully they won't need a guardianship. Yeah. Um, and that's the other piece of this. It's not just the parents um, making powers of attorney and wills, but it's also the adult children of of these people making their powers of attorney and wills if they're capable of doing so. Mm-hmm. And that's a whole other subset of, of what I do is the capacity, is dealing with capacity issues. So just because someone's disabled doesn't mean they're incapable of making their own powers of attorney or their will. And there are specific tests at law for capacity to do each of those things. And so someone can be incapable of 
making a power of attorney for property, for example, but they could be capable of making a power of attorney for personal care. So that's one less thing you need to worry about. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, that was a bit of a tangent. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. I do that a lot. (laughs) Well, we talked talked a little bit about how your days were spent pre-COVID. Things have changed a lot in law since COVID. Um, Tell us what changes you have encountered in your area of practice as a result of the pandemic. And I'm not talking about um, your firm specifically, but your practice area. Mm -hmm. So the most significant change in my practices, in my practice area would be on the will drafting, will and power of attorney execution side. So prior to COVID, you could not witness the signing of a will or power of attorney virtually. You had to be in the presence of, which is the language um, in the legislation, in the presence of the person who was signing their will and and powers of attorney, and in the presence of had means in person. And so at the start of the pandemic, of course, um, well, you know, heightened anxiety, pandemic, Everyone wants to make their wills and powers of attorney, but all the law offices are shut down and no one can meet with you in person. And so thanks to the work of, you know, a lot of lawyers across the province uh, and bar association at the Ontario Bar Association, um, uh, the attorney general um, enacted the emergency legislation in order to permit the virtual witnessing of wills and powers of attorney. Yeah. So not the virtual signing. Yeah. Which is an important difference. Okay, tell us about the difference. Um, <laughs> important difference. Yes. To me. <laughs> <laughs> to everyone else are like, okay. Yeah, not necessarily interesting <laughs> to anyone out there, but um, important difference in that it, it did not allow the electronic signing of wills and powers of attorney. What it allowed is that I can witness you signing your will and powers of attorney. Okay, so you still have to sign it by hand. You still have to sign it by hand. So I prepare your will and powers of Mm -hmm. attorney. I send them to you or I email them to you. You print them out. And then you sign your hard copy of your will and powers of attorney while me and while I and a second witness are watching you do it. Through video conferencing. Through video conferencing. Now, but is this... And And we sign as witnesses separate copies in counterpart. Okay, but is this different than the virtual commissioning that is also allowed now? No, it's similar, but it required different a different emergency. Okay, I understand. Yes. So okay, so we have two. Yeah, so it is separate. So it's different, but yeah. similar. Similar. But it's great. So because we do a lot of virtual yeah. commissioning, and I actually have talked to some of the guests I've had, some lawyers, and we all agree that it makes so much it's sense. Great. Like, why are people coming into our offices so that we can witness or they can sign in front of us? You know, it takes a few seconds, and yeah. they're coming from everywhere. Yeah. It makes absolutely no sense. So my question to you is, do you believe that that change for the virtual signing of a will is here to stay? Well, long so pause. <laughs> long pause, pause signals, no. <laughs> Maybe not. Long pause signals, a qualified answer. Okay. So in many cases... It is wonderful and it should stay. The reason for the long pause is because I have a lot of clients, because I do a lot of elder law, elder abuse, 
power of attorney fraud, contested wills, capacity cases. Mm -hmm. I have a heightened awareness of the cases where there is room for undue influence. So you're a little weary about this. I'm a little weary about, even though, you know, we can do the sweep of the room on Zoom to make sure there's nobody there holding a gun to your head, forcing you to sign this will. It's not the same as having that client come to my office. And you know for with sure. no one else in the you room. You know what? I get it. And they can look me in the eyes. Yeah. And I can see if they've been, I can tell if they've been coached. No, I understand. I, you because know? So, but I can I, see I, some like, like child, well, they're not a child, but an adult child saying, you have to sign this, you have to sign this. And they're like right outside the room yeah. of an older parent. And, you know, you can't see if they're just outside the room. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I'm aware that I have a dis- disproportionate exposure to this, right? Because this is my area of law. People come to our firm because they know we do elder law and, and these types of cases. And so, sure, maybe I'm seeing a disproportionate amount of these the undue influence, mm-hmm. you know, capacity, questionable cap capacity type cases. But they're out there. So, so hopefully, you know, if they take it away... It'll just be for the wills. The virtual signing of wills can be taken away, but virtual commissioning, I really hope not, because it's. I feel so virtual badly for my clients. Di- yeah, yeah it's very different. Virtual commissioning is a, is a different thing. Yeah, it's an yeah. affidavit. They're swearing the contents are true. Yeah. Um, in my practice area, it's personal injury, so you know, there's usually nothing contentious in the affidavits for our motions. Yeah. Uh, I don't think there would be any concern of their kid forcing them to sign. <laughs> yeah. No, and you know, I think. Probably my answer is yes, it should, it could stay, but it would be the lawyer would have to exercise discretion as to when to use the virtual commissioning and when to insist that the client, that, that the meeting be done in person, right? So if it's, you know, if, the, if it's a couple, they're just leaving everything to each other and then do their kids in the alternative, you know, middle aged, no capacity issues, no, you know, no undue influence, no one around who would undo influence them, then virtual commissioning could be, a virtual witnessing of the wills and powers attorney could be certainly appropriate, you know, for that to stay post-COVID. Do you have any regrets about going into your practice area of trusts and estates law? (laughs) Uh, No, none whatsoever. Uh, well, like you're so you're so passionate, and I've I've worked with you. And one of the things that I love about your style is is that your passion comes through. Like I know that you genuinely care. Am I wrong? Because no, <laughs> you're not wrong. And um, you know, it, I want to say I feel really lucky to be in trust and estates, but it, it wasn't actually luck at all. It was a lot of pounding of pavement and soul searching, and. You know, I suppose a little bit of luck in the beginning to be in the same room as the same as certain people who inspired me, you know, my current partner, Jan Goddard, being one of them. Um, A little bit of luck, but, you know, it was mostly uh, having to find a way to work on disability and elder law issues, but in a way that was practical and you know actually made money and paid the bills um and 
you know, and actually did something, you know, meaningful. And so that's why I'm passionate about it. It's it's funny because people, you say trust in the States and I, and, and that's what people call it. You're correctly calling oh, it. Oh, I was like, States. wait, am I talking about the wrong practice here? Yeah, <laughs> you're right. Because it sounds like yawn. It sounds so boring, right? Like, you know, it sounds Ooh. so, it's not the sexiest traditionally or stereotypically the sexiest area of law yet. I'm so passionate about it. Like I find it so interesting. But you know what? You could say that about any practice area. And and one of the themes that I'm finding, and it could just be the people that I've invited. I don't know. But the people that I've had on this podcast are are all in love with their areas as much as I am with mine. And I, I love hearing it. I just love it. In fact, one one lawyer was sort of, I think he was making fun of personal injury law <laughs> during our, our interview. And I didn't care because I love it. And yeah. I know that I'm helping people. And I feel really good about what I do. Mm-hmm. Like I am helping injured people. And they're at a time when they need help. And they have no one to turn to except someone like me. Um, so I feel very good about it. And I know how good it feels to be passionate and you know wake up excited to come to the office and i'm so pleased to have met lawyers in totally different practice areas that Mm -hmm. feel the same way about their own area because it's not like you could feel this way about every area of law no like in fact i in fact i didn't i i articled at a full service firm and didn't want to be a lawyer by the end of it what areas did they, did they have in rotations or yeah no it wasn't there wasn't a formal rotation okay so you just sort of did whatever work was given to you, and um, you know there were some great, great lawyers, great people at that firm um, where I articled. But the cases were not the work was not what I went to. Going back to the beginning of this interview, mm-hmm. right? I went to law school with this interest in disability and elder law issues, and then came out, you know, came out of law school with my cape on, rearing to go, rearing to go. You know, let where are all the save all these people, save all these people, yeah. and then. You know, at a full service firm, that's just not, you know, you just that's do whatever. That's not their priority. That's not their priority. And I thought, well, you know, in my naivety at, at that point, you know, I thought, well, if this is what law is, then I'm out of here. Mm-hmm. Um, and fortunately, I, you know, I thought, well, after all that time and effort, I might as well half-heartedly try to do what you want to do within law try and do and i thought at that time i i had no idea about trust in the states and elder law and incapacity like it wasn't nobody was talking about elder law at at that time in a way that i would have heard about it Mm -hmm. right so i thought at that time that health law would be my in uh, for disability and and seniors issues and so because i was looking for a health law job i and this is the the luck part I stumbled into an opportunity um, getting hired by the Walkerton Inquiry, mm-hmm. so which was led by then Associate Chief Justice O'Connor, Dennis O'Connor, um, who's one of my favorite human beings on planet. <laughs> so he and the Senior Commission Council basically, you know, resurrected my faith in the legal system, my passion for the law, my desire to be a lawyer, because... I was, you know, it was about a year and a half that I was with the Walkerton Inquiry, and I realized then that, okay, no, I do want to practice law, but it has to be on with respect to something, issues that I find interesting and important, and with people who are like-minded and um, who inspire me, 
And so it also bought me time, the walk being there for a year and a half on this contract. I knew it wasn't going to last forever. So um, I was always pounding the pavement looking for that elusive elder law, disability law <laughs> <laughs> job. And um, I was going to a lot of CPD, a lot of programs. Every time there was a program on anything related to capacity, disability issues, guardianship, you know. You were there. I was there. But that's great advice for people looking for their, a particular area they're interested in. I tell every junior lawyer who, who asks me about how I, you know, why I'm a happy lawyer and how I figured out what it was I wanted to do. That is what I tell them. Go, you know, any issue that interests you. Like network, go, go to meet the program, people. Yeah. See who's speaking at mm-hmm. those programs. And fu- so 80% of those programs that I went to, there was Jan Goddard speaking. And it's kind of like how I heard you. And every time, <laughs> I heard her, every time I heard her speak, I thought, I let, you know, I just I really liked her approach. She sounded really smart, but practical. Um, and, and it turned out that she happened to have uh, got done her undergrad with one of the senior commission counsel of Freya Christensen, now Justice Christensen. Um, and so Freya connected me with Jan and we went for lunch. And, um, the, and rest the rest is history. is history, right? Yeah. Well, Namali, I'm so happy you didn't bail on law because I think the law in Ontario is very happy to have you. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you teaching us and in particular me about what you do. So thank you so much for having me, Jess.